Welcome to the Human Design Collective Podcast, where we explore this system as a unique map of our potential, from the mundane to the mystical. If you're looking to dive deeper into human design, join our Living Your Design Workshop, offered live online June 12th and 26th, 2021, with John Cole and Amy Lee. For more information on foundation courses and other transformational workshops, go to courses.humandesigncollective.com. Today, our Spotlight episode focuses on listener questions about the transit field, health and codependence, and how to deal with openness in the design. We hope you enjoy it. From time to time, we get questions from our listeners about different aspects of design. And we have one person in particular, Julie, who sent in a few questions to us. So we thought we'd start with her in this first question answering episode. So the first one was about human design and addiction and also human design and codependence. So what can we see through the human design system about issues around addiction and codependence, and especially as they might relate to the spleen and the solar plexus? John, did you have anything in there you'd want to jump in on? I think it's actually a good place to start with the spleen. If you look at the nature of the spleen, one of the things that we see is that the spleen is holding on it tends to want to hold on to life through these questions of survival, our well-being, our sense of security. And that can go both ways. We can see that with the defined spleen, and we can also see that with a open spleen and the conditioning that we're pulling in from the outside. One thing you might notice is that For people who have the spleen defined, like you're saying, there is this sort of natural survival an intuitive instinct that's there that's very oriented toward what brings health and well-being to the system. So if someone who has a defined spleen is in a healthy state and they're able to listen to those instincts and that intuition, then they'll probably be getting their own personal form of awareness about things in the moment as they come in contact with them, everything from food to substances to people to places. That's kind of what the splenic intelligence is for. If you have an open spleen, you may find that there is a natural sort of underlying insecurity that's often there. And it doesn't mean that you don't have your own instincts or your own intuition about what's healthy for you or how to survive, but your access to that awareness for yourself is more inconsistent. When that's the case, for those of us with an open spleen, John and I both have open spleen, you may find that there can be a sort of insecurity about your own survival or an uncertainty about what's really healthy for you or not. It can be hard to tell sometimes. And particularly in relationship dynamics, if you have someone with an open spleen in relationship or near a defined spleen, that can sometimes bring a sense of comfort or a sense of feeling like, oh, I actually feel like I'm going to be okay on this sort of subtle, persistent level when I'm around this person who has this sort of survival instinct. In that case, sometimes that longing for comfort or the comfort that can come from uh, certain relationships or even from certain behaviors or certain substances can help to ease that sense of insecurity. And if that attachment to those things that bring comfort is stronger than our connection to our consistent natural intelligence through strategy and authority, then you'll often see people with open spleens holding on to the wrong things. 
because they don't have a consistent source of intelligence there to let them know what to hold on to and what to let go of. And I think that's one way that we can often see addiction coming up, whether that's addiction to certain relationships or substances or behaviors that are actually not really healthy, but they bring a certain level of security or comfort. If we don't have something reliable or something that we feel we can trust to replace whatever momentary comfort we get from holding on to these things that aren't really good for us, then we don't really have any options. Yeah, so that's a good point. And this is where authority, I think, can be a really helpful point of reference for us. If we have a sense of what our inner authority is, then we have something to meet that conditioning with, the conditioning that makes us feel safe or secure, even though the situation may be harmful in other ways, or uh, holding on to certain patterns of behavior, certain addictions, uh, you could say substance addictions or food addictions. If we have a sense of what it really means to be ourselves and what's correct, healthy, and true for us through this experience of inner authority, then it gives us a point of reference to navigate with. Just brings to mind for me how it can be scary to make that transition. I think it can be really intimidating or it can feel destabilizing to make choices in our lives that take us into new places or into new territory. So if, for example, we get to a place where we realize, I feel like I need this person in my life, I can't let them go, but I know they're not healthy for me and we let them go, then we're left being in a place where we've suddenly lost this conditioning force that we had in our lives for a long time. And that can be a really destabilizing place to be in, even if it's technically healthier for the body and for your life. I don't think we can overestimate how much courage it can take in some of those moments to be able to choose, okay, I'm not going to um, engage in this behavior or engage in this relationship, even though I know it's gonna make me feel more comfortable in the moment because I can tell there's something else in me, there's some other kind of intelligence, whether that's coming from your sacral authority or your emotional authority or your G-Center authority, whatever it is, it's telling you that there's something else that's healthier for you. I think those can be places where it makes sense and I can understand why a lot of people need different kinds of support you know, to be able right. to do that, to be able to make that transition because to let go of something that makes you think you're going to be able to survive. You've got to have something else. It can be hard to tolerate that, you know, completely alone. And, yeah. and I think everybody's path is unique. Some people are going to be able to do that alone. And <laughs> this is kind of good. We, we start to get deep fast because it can start to take us into that kind of no choice territory that Ra would talk about and how much he talked about timing and that there's timing for each of us in place in terms of when we're able to shift our awareness or shift our behavior or have something else come into our lives that shows us a deeper truth about our own nature. Yeah, I, but I guess I wanna say it that way just to not minimize it. It sounds really simple at the surface to say, oh, well, just let go of an unhealthy behavior and listen to your authority, but that's not an easy thing in a lot of ways. So it takes some courage. Yeah, I was kind of thinking the same thing we often need something else to put in place. I mean, it's it's one thing just to say, drop it, but 
you know, we all know that it's a lot easier to, for example, leave a relationship if you have something on the other side or leave a, a secure, what seems to be a secure job if you have another job waiting. In this case, you could possibly replace bad habits with different types of habits or ritual or routine. In a way, I feel like, you know, that's what strategy and authority is. It's giving our mind and it's giving us an, something else that we can kind of lean on or experiment with. And then what do we get out of it? We get potentially awareness. We can see things as they are. And that may be the beginning of a real change if, if everything else falls in place. I think that's why it's so often talked about as an experiment and as a process that takes time and takes some practice and on a deeper level is about finding out what else can you trust in yourself. If you don't rely for the most part on what you've been told or what you think is going to make you okay in the world, how do we develop trust in something that's actually healthier for us and closer to what's really true for us as a unique being in the world? And that takes some time and takes some practice to develop that trust. It's, it's, a, it's a relationship that we develop with ourselves. It can surprise us if we can tolerate the discomfort long enough, you know, if we can let go or not give in to that compulsive behavior, whatever it is. I think we often find on the other side of it that, oh, actually I'm okay. Like, it's not gonna kill me to not have this thing in my life. Like I, I actually can survive it. I'm, I'm actually okay. Yeah, and looking at it from the point of view of the solar plexus is interesting. Maybe that's a little less obvious when it comes to addictions or compulsive behaviors for, you know, for me, at least I have an open solar plexus. What comes to mind initially is say like the 3955 channel of emoting and how it's often associated with eating disorders. If you can understand what are the underlying mechanics that are in operation here, you're dealing with the emotional wave, you're dealing with a cyclical pattern of feeling, moods, the way that your experience is colored through time. Oftentimes, what can seem like addictive or compulsive behavior from an emotional perspective is really an inability to be with the entire cycle, the entire process of the wave as it goes from high to low. Yeah, I think that is a place where we can see some reactive behaviors or reactive habits where it may be that for someone who has emotional definition, that when you hit a particular part of your emotional wave or particular frequency of emotion that's difficult to process, that may be a point where you find you repetitively reach for something that is not really healthy for you because it's uncomfortable to sit through those emotions or that there's a, a way that you become reactive or act impulsively in terms of your relationships that actually creates more damage in the relationship or creates more more chaos for yourself than if you were able to just sit with and feel those feelings and let them pass and learn and trust and know that they will pass that they do pass the overriding advice for anyone with emotional definition is to not act impulsively to give things time to make decisions over time Another example comes to mind, which is compulsive spending. I've talked to clients who, when they're at the high point of their wave, they're going to go out and buy a bunch of stuff. I could also see it from the other side. Someone's at the low point of the wave, they're feeling empty going back to say gate 55 and the way that works, they're trying to fill a void. They're trying to fill a hole in themselves. 
And so by understanding or bringing some greater awareness to that process, to how the emotional system functions, we might be able to get a little bit of separation from it where we can catch ourselves in the moment and realize like, this is that pattern that I've seen where I go out and I'm feeling this way. And then I go spend a bunch of money on something and then later realize that I didn't want any of it anyway. Yeah. I think that's a great one. I think that a lot of people can probably relate to that. And it shows like what you were highlighting, why there is that piece of guidance that goes with the emotional process, which is to wait over time. And then you get to see what persists, what comes back, what do you actually really want? Because it's the truth of how you feel. And it's what settles out as the truth for you versus it's the heat of the moment. You know, it's the intensity of the moment driving things. And in some ways, if we look at an open solar plexus, it can be even worse. <laughs> you know, if, you, if you've got an open solar plexus, especially if it's being heavily influenced by emotional energy, which many of us are, then we can find those same cycles of emotional intensity can be even more amplified and more difficult to process if you don't have a consistent emotional process of your own. So I know I've experienced many times in my life when I've been in contact with a certain amount of emotional energy and intensity that just felt like beyond what I could sort of physically and energetically process. And again, an opportunity to work with inner authority. If you have a point of reference, if you're open solar plexus, the guidance is not to make emotional decisions. In my case, I have a will-based ego authority. So for me, it would be don't react emotionally, don't react compulsively in that situation with awareness I can see when I actually have the will or the energy coming from within me to engage in something or to commit to something or say yes. And I feel like that provides a point of reference, like we were saying with the spleen, so that we can meet that conditioning with greater awareness and see what happens, see if, if there's a different possibility or option there for us. I just think something that's really cool about it is that you can take something like codependence or addiction and see that it can actually be a, a pretty differentiated thing to find out for yourself. What is that about? Where is that coming from? There are a few different places we could see it play out a few different ways. But if you sit with your design and you study it and you observe your own behavior and your own interactions, you'll probably start to see where these drives are coming from and which, which ones are healthy and which ones aren't. So the next question follows pretty well from that. The statement was, I have seven open centers and only one defined channel. Do you have guidance for the susceptibility to conditioning with all of this openness? And how do I get out of aura and get clear as to who I really am? And if I do distance myself from relationships and interpersonal conditioning, then am I being conditioned by the transit field or the neutrinos more so than other people who have more definition. This is a question about how do we get affected or how do we manage the greater level of conditioning that comes with having a lot more openness in the design. Uh, in this case, we're looking at someone who has two centers defined, which is similar to you, John, if you wanna share your experience of that. Yeah, so this is a projector design and as projectors, we're here for conditioning instead of it being a question of avoiding conditioning or getting out of it, which may be helpful from time to time. I feel like it's more a case of accepting that conditioning is, exists. 
we're here for a relationship, we're here for the other. And it becomes a question of correctness, how we're entering into these situations and relationships. And we have our strategy of waiting for the invitation as something to work with, experiment with in, in that process. Our relationship with conditioning will be unique to us as individuals. I think it does come back to bringing more awareness to these dynamics, how we're entering into it. It may be that we aren't here for everyone all the time, that we have certain relationships where it's okay if we're spending a limited amount of time with somebody and, and knowing that that conditioning will be there. With Julie and myself, we have two out of seven centers defined, so we have a lot of openness. There's no way we're going to go into a relationship and not take on the other. For me personally, it feels like I am often wearing the person for a couple hours, even after the encounter. And I can watch that. I can, I have an experience of that. I can feel it in that moment. You know, I, I can just be aware of it. You know, it takes time. It's something I see over time or I've, I've come to see over time. Yeah. To me, this is just a, an awareness game and a seeing game. Yeah. I think it can also be for those of us who have a lot of open centers, it can be helpful to remember that that's just showing that we have a greater amount of natural flexibility in us. And that can be seen as being flexible, or it can also be seen as being unstable. But it does mean like you're saying that whatever we come in contact with, it's likely that it's going to affect us pretty deeply. And it will also probably get reflected through us through how we behave or how how our energy is affected by who we're with. And one of the best pieces of advice I ever got early in design was uh, someone saying to me, hey, you're a really open projector with no motors defined. So if somebody's really right for you, it'll be a, the conditioning will be something that you can handle and it'll probably be something that you even kind of like. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I think it can even bring us closer to just using signature and not self themes as a way of being able to tell if the conditioning that we're experiencing is something that we like is something that we can handle. I mean, you can have a generator who has only two centers defined and seven centers open. That's someone who could also be very deeply conditioned through relationship. So if you find yourself, you know, as a projector feeling really bitter or feeling really irritated or feeling really rageful in a relationship that you're spending a lot of time in, then that's probably a pretty good sign that those conditioning influences aren't really working for you. I think it can be sort of as simple as that. To your point, we have these helpful points of reference in human design. Uh, how did we enter into it? What, was there recognition? Were we invited? Uh, what did our inner authority say? Does it bring up an experience of success for us to be in this relationship or in this situation? How does it taste? Does it taste bitter? Does it taste sweet? Does it feel like something that we want to take on or we want to eat? And then it becomes, again, about awareness. I think it also speaks to this thing that comes up sometimes where I'll hear projectors say, oh, I've learned that I'm a projector, so I'm not supposed to work too much and I'm not supposed to have a lot of energy and I'm supposed to rest all the time. And I think it's true that for most projectors, we probably do when you first find out about this knowledge, it's probably true that most of us need more rest than we've been conditioned to allow ourselves. But projectors come in a lot of different shapes and sizes with a lot of different kinds of energy levels. I think it really depends because 
in certain roles and in certain relationships, a projector might be very active and very energized. Uh, I think the key point there is just that it can be helpful if you've got a lot of openness in your design just to recognize and accept how variable your experience can be and how interdependent with your environment and your relationships. And that that's okay. It doesn't have to be a problem. I think a lot of the issues we have with ourselves sometimes come with feeling like I'm supposed to be the same way all the time. I should be consistent in how I do things all the time. That's not the case for a lot of us. Maybe sometimes getting out of the conditioning field, taking time for yourself, go take a walk in nature, try sleeping alone for a while and see what comes up. You may get a point of reference there that can be helpful when you go back into that relationship or you, you meet that conditioning again to say, okay, this is my experience here. And that was my experience there. And there's something to be seen there. Again, follow your inner authority. There's not one size fits all in terms of the template that any of us are supposed to follow. And it is an experiment. I love the question about, you know, how do I get clear as to who I really am? That's a very personal process. I mean, even in, there's a way we'll talk about in human design about frequency, that each of us has our own unique and very particular frequency. And I think that's the best word to use to describe it. It's a certain tone of energy or something that is inherent to what we are as a unique being. That's a very personal discovery. I don't know. I think the most I could say about that is experiment with this stuff and play with this strategy and authority thing and play with taking yourself in and out of conditioning fields and see what you find out. Because I think you get to a point where you'll have moments that it'll just land and it might even just feel like, oh my God, I can feel myself. <laughs> like I can feel what I am. And that I think that's just something that will happen when it happens. And if you're a really open projector, you're probably going to learn about who you are and your frequency in and out of a relationship as you go back and forth between the two. The fundamental question for projectors is who is the other? But I think what's implied in that is who am I in relationship to the other? Again, it's not a question of really avoiding the conditioning, but how are, how are we meeting the conditioning? So with generators and projectors, you have a more absorbing, receptive aura than you do with manifestors and reflectors who you could say have some level of built-in protection. They're, they're not really designed to be influenced as deeply as projectors and generators. Reflectors and manifestors, that they tend to be more sensitive or more attuned to the transit field because they're not getting as much interpersonal conditioning coming in from, from the other types or from other people. But with a really open generator or projector, if you move out of the interpersonal field, I would think that you, you could be more attuned or more sensitive to the transit program, to the planetary influences. And that could be an interesting experiment in itself to see if, if let's say you were taking a road trip by yourself for a couple of weeks and once you got out of aura, then maybe to look at the transits or to just keep an eye on where the planets were at that given time and see what's coming up for you. But that's the way I understand it from the logic of the system. Anytime you see definition in the chart, if you see a defined center through channel definition, 
then you're looking at something that is fixed and limited in its expression. When you have an open center, you're talking about inconsistency. You're talking about a certain variability or conditionality in how your experience of that part of yourself works. When you see definition, it's going to be pretty specific. And what I see with people with a lot of definition is they're, they're fixed. It's kind of hard to get in there. It's hard to influence them in the same way that someone with seven open centers might be influenced. Yeah, I think a lot of people are experiencing what you've described just through this, what's been happening globally for the last year or so with COVID, that a lot more people are having a lot more time either in their own aura and not interacting nearly as much with other bodies, with other people in person, or people are finding themselves in situations where they're at home with just their spouse or their kids or their family or whoever they're living with in a much more concentrated way than they have been before. And I think both of those experiences are showing people different aspects of how these energy dynamics work. And I, I would agree from what I've seen in myself and what I've seen in talking to a lot of different people that for those of us who are finding ourselves a lot more isolated or spending a lot more time alone or at home and not having much or contact with anyone, um, I do think it seems to make us more sensitive to the transit field. I think it makes us also even more sensitive to what we pick up from each other at a distance as well through through digital communication, through phone communication. So I think that's all part of the experiment that we're in. I do think most people are finding themselves becoming more sensitive to these things in different ways. Yeah, and what's really kind of a mind bender is to think that the program, the transit program is actually setting up situations where we're all more isolated so that we can actually be more influenced by the transit field, uh, not to be, uh, not to assign some sort of agency to all of that. And it does seem like you're saying that every, there's a lot of sensitivity to these planetary influences that we're currently working with, which I think is a good lead in to our last question today. Yeah, the last piece was about how can human design be predictive of the future? How can it give us some data or information so that we're more prepared for what's coming around the corner? You know, further in this question, um, Julie references an episode that we did with Peter Schober where he suggested that we're entering a part of the global cycle that's really, I mean, we may be feeling like we've been in this sort of global crisis, but he suggested that we're actually in a prelude <laughs> to a few chapters of a bunch more change that's coming. She was asking, could this be planned for by watching Pluto or Neptune move? So what can human design show us about the future? And I'd love to hear your take on this, John, especially because I know you have a lot of background in astrology as well. One of the things that astrologers will do is they'll look to the past to understand the, the future, looking at the past patterns, seeing how they fit into current world events or different errors, different times to give us a little bit more context about how these planetary influences work empirically. I think we can do some of that in human design as well, while keeping in mind that the past never really repeats exactly in the same way as before. So even though we can get a general sketch about, okay, the last time we had, let's say a Saturn Jupiter conjunction in this particular area of the mandala, it looked like this. Well, 
that's one factor among many would have been influencing that particular time. We're always looking at like cycles upon cycles. There's something there. We can, we can look to the past to understand the present and the future. And we can see that there is always going to be a kind of a changing background frequency and, and changing influences. Specific to your question about the outer planets, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, it's these outer planets, which are the slow moving planets, which tend to carry most of the weight in terms of our societal influences, what we're seeing out in the world on a mundane level and kind of the big deeper changes that we're all experiencing. Whereas if you look at the quicker, faster moving planets like Mars, Mercury, Venus, you know, these things are, they're cycling on a much quicker basis. So, you know, those tend to be kind of triggers or they're at, they're going to add a certain amount of nuance or detail within the larger background picture, but that is the place to start. And I would include the, the nodes of the moon in there as well as slow moving. They're not planets, but points of reference for us. In human design, we can look at those movements and those transits of the outer planets and the nodes of the moon, I think in large part to get a sense of what the major cultural and collective influences are, what's coming through the collective programming on a, on a massive scale that we'll see you know, across a generation or that we'll, we'll see over years at a time and what we see play out on the collective level. And that can be really helpful just to know that those patterns are there, those themes are there, because otherwise I think it can be easy for us to think that we can find ourselves sort of being influenced by it and thinking that it's personal or thinking that it's special in some way, when if we really look at it, we can see, oh no, this is happening all over. Ra seemed to suggest from looking at individual transit charts as well as looking at the broader influences, he seemed to suggest that it can give us a certain predictive quality if we're looking at large global themes and if we're looking at collective media, for example, as a demonstration of what's happening with those outer planet transits. But in terms of what happens for each of us as an individual in our own lives, human design was really pointing to this possibility that even in the midst of those themes, there are pathways that each of us can be moving on that are unique and individual to us. And that if we are referencing our own strategy and authority in the midst of those conditioning fields, we'll see that there are many unique ways through that. If we just look at the conditioning field in and of itself, and if we don't have access to anything in us that's unique or connected to our individual intelligence, it's more likely that those themes are going to be very predictive of exactly what happens to us. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think it, it brings up this idea that we don't have to play along with the program. We have another option. The program will always be the program. The influences will always be there. But if you have something like strategy and authority to put up against it, to meet that conditioning with, it gives it a chance of operating to some degree independently of the program where whatever transit that's running through the solar plexus right now or defining the solar plexus is not dictating the choices that we're making in our life or the decisions that we're making. We can understand that this is the conditioning that's coming in. You know, we're experiencing the wave in this way. And we can change our relationship with it, at least in potential. I think that's a really important distinction to make where what I saw a lot with the astrological community, and I was guilty of it myself 
for, for many years was I would see a transit coming and then I would almost try to accommodate it in some way in, in that I felt that Uranus is sitting on my son. I'm going to go do something crazy now, or I'm going to go and do something wild. It's like, that is the energy that's coming in, but is that actually correct for me? Kind of like you're saying, there's this potential to, to operate somewhat independently from that or to change our relationship with those energies. That's something that I think human design brings in that I didn't see in the astrological world. Yeah, I think one one of the things that can be helpful in terms of this question about, well, can we can we plan for these things that are coming or can we be prepared for it in some way? I think one of the ways I found it really helpful in in listening to the human design transit analysis that's coming out is that it makes it even more obvious when certain things are happening on a global or collective scale. It makes it really clear like, oh, I see that, you know, we could take something as simple as right now we're in a period of several years where there's been a lot of confusion about the truth, a lot of confusion about what's really true and a lot of divisiveness about it and a lot of questioning about it. And all of these themes around, you know, real news or fake news and true information or misinformation, you know, scientific evidence or not, there are these really big themes that are happening that you can see the collective becomes very focused on. When we know that's coming, and especially if you develop a relationship with the I Ching and the gates of, of the human design body graph, it can be such a beautiful, fascinating, and sometimes terrifying <laughs> exploration. But as those themes come up, you can say, oh, wow, yeah, Pluto's in 61. It's very clear that that's what's happening right now. I don't know that that necessarily gives us any answers personally. I think human design guidance sort of points us toward our own personal unique intelligence to navigate that. But it can be really helpful to know this could be a big re reason why we're seeing these themes play out in this way. I would say that if, if you're interested in learning more about this, John and I can both uh, recommend there's that Peter Schober, who's an analyst over in Europe, is doing a program through Jovian Archive. Um, I think he's doing it about every quarter this year. He's doing his own interpretation of outer planet transits. It's really good. And then Alakanan Diaz, through Your Own Authority, is an analyst over in Spain who also does a program called the program is not your life. And he does those monthly, I think, where he also gives his take on what the transit field is showing. And they're both kind of relating it to current events and what we're seeing play out. And I can recommend them both just because I think they bring their own take, but they also bring a, a certain amount of neutrality about it that's sort of a port in the storm <laughs> in the midst of everything that's happening in the world right now. I found it really helpful. Yeah, they're both really good. So anyone who's interested in both the current events from the point of view of human design or just the mechanics of planetary influences in the program uh, would probably find a lot of value in both of those offerings. They're very deep. They're two of our favorite teachers. They both have years and years of experience looking at this and evaluating things this way through the lens of human design. So that would be a great place to go. Well, thank you, Julie. Those were some great questions. And for any of you out there, if you have particular questions about design in general or things that you're seeing in your own exploration, please feel free if you go to the humandesigncollective.com 
site, there's a place where you can enter in your questions for the podcast. And we'll be continuing to look at some of those more in the future. Thank you for listening to the Human Design Collective podcast. If you enjoy the show, please review us and share. You can find us at humandesigncollective.com and explore our course and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. Music for the Human Design Collective podcast is courtesy of Anders Parker. For more information, see the show notes. And please stay tuned for more upcoming episodes on the same channel. Fly